Good evening. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight. My name is Rosemary Holt, and on behalf of the Catholic Information Center, it is my pleasure to welcome everyone who is joining us tonight and to introduce William E. Simon, Jr., author of Great Catholic Parishes, How Four Essential Practices Make Them Thrive. William is the founder of Parish Catalyst, an organization devoted to researching and supporting the health and development of Catholic parishes. In his book, William offers creative solutions to familiar challenges, such as spiritual stagnation among parishioners and how to reach youth and young adults who leave the church in disproportionate numbers. Tonight, William will discuss the current state of Catholic churches in North America and offer his insights on how to create a thriving parish community. And with that, please join me in welcoming Mr. Simon. How's that? Perfect. Is that better? Okay. I want to thank Father Arnie and I want to thank Mitch and thank you for a very kind introduction. It's, it's really nice to be here and, and I have in the small world department one of my classmates from college. I graduated in 1973 as did Milton Grenfell. We were in the same class and I think the same entry freshman year, right Milton? Say Jeff. Unbelievable. Oh my God Milton, it's really good to see you. I mean Milton tempts me to just throw out the speech and uh, you know just open it up to Q&A because Milton always had a lot of questions and uh, I don't know if he has a lot of questions around here but he sure had a lot in college but I think that the way I, I plan to start this speech is something that maybe Milton would appreciate because if somebody had told me 30 years ago maybe 40 years ago that I would be here today talking about a book that I wrote on Catholic parishes, I think most people, maybe Milton included, I would say that I'd have a greater chance at winning the Powerball lottery. It was kind of highly unlikely. But my faith journey, like, like many, has not been you know, a straight line. And I don't want to talk about it at length today, although maybe I'll shorten the speech, you know, given the intimate surrounding, and open it up to Q&A a little earlier. You're welcome to ask me. I, <coughs> Very briefly, I, I grew up in an Irish Catholic family in New Jersey, the oldest of seven. And, you know, our custom and practice was every Sunday, you know, we get piled into our station wagon by my parents and kicking and screaming mostly, you know, we'd be hustled off to church. And, uh, you know, that's the way it was until I got to Williams College and I began to not go to church as frequently. And then after college, I went to work for a small bank in New York City, uh, J.P. Morgan, and uh, I found I didn't get to church, you know, hardly at all. And I spent a lot of time trying to be impressive to young ladies. And uh, it wasn't really until I met my wife Cindy in my 30s that I began to go back to church regularly. And even then, uh, for reasons I'll go into in a second, my attendance was was pretty perfunctory, honestly. I it wasn't really until uh, we moved to California from New Jersey 26 years ago that we happened upon a parish, St. Monica's in Santa Monica, California. And Father Michael, who's here with us today, uh, knows all about St. Monica's, knows all about the pastor, Lloyd Torgerson. And uh, it was a transformational experience for me. It was a transformational experience for my family. And uh, when we went out there, my wife was not Catholic, and she, uh, she said, 
I'm happy to have the children raised Catholic, but you're going to take the lead on that. And I did. And after about, you know, five years, Cindy, my wife, started coming to church with us. And after 15 years, one day, out of the blue, she said to me, I have some good news, but I want you to know one thing. And I said, well, what's the good news? And she says, I want to convert to be a Catholic. And I said, well, what's the one thing? And she said, it had nothing to do with you. <laughs> and it was our pastor, of course, it was God and the Holy Spirit, no question, but our pastor had a lot to do with it. And, you know, Kirk Wilson is here today, his brother, Bruce, and their, his wife, Gretchen, <clears throat> our parishioners at that parish, and I saw kind of firsthand how a parish could have a profound impact on somebody's life. And, and even in those days when I was honestly checking the box w with our kids, we were so busy with our four kids, it was kind of everything that we could do, you know, to put one foot in front of the other. And so on my spiritual journey, as I went from checking the box to something a little deeper, I began to turn to my pastor for spiritual direction, Lloyd Torgerson, and he was great. And I turned to another friend of mine, actually a friend of my dad's and a friend of Jim Pearson. Jim is here today and I'm grateful. He's the president of our family foundation, but has done you know, many, many other things. And one of his pals who he introduced me to is Michael Novak. And Michael, as many of you may know, is a great author, a great philosopher, uh, you know, just a you know, very large footprint in the Catholic world for, for many decades now. And I remember about 15 years ago, I was in Washington for something, and I met Michael, and we were kind of commiserating about the fact that the public narrative about the Catholic Church was largely negative. And I said, wouldn't it be great to write a book on all the good things going on in the Catholic Church? Write an optimistic book that was realistic. And we began to talk about the notion of maybe writing about lay people. And it took us a while. I ran for political office. I had some business things I was doing, and, uh, and Michael had some projects that we were helping him with. So we didn't really dive in full time until 2011, when we wrote a book, Living the Call. That was my first exposure to Father Arnie, who I'm very grateful to and consider a dear friend, and, uh, and Mitch. And we came here and did a book event. And so when I look around here, I think, boy, this is, this is familiar surroundings. And it was through that book that I was introduced to, you know, a deeper level of spirituality by Michael. Michael introduced me to works like My Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, St. Francis de Sales, I mean, the writings of St. Teresa. Uh, it, was, it was a magical journey with Michael that ended up with a book. Now, this book has also been a magical journey that I'll mention, you know, in just a sec why that is. But when we, when we wrote the book, of course, we sent it to all of our friends. And one of the people I sent it to was a fellow in Texas named Bob Buford. And Bob called me and he, he had read the book. He said, this is great, but he didn't want to talk about the book. He wanted to talk about what he was doing, which is great. He said, why don't you do what I've been doing for 30 years in the evangelical tradition? And I said, well, 
tell me about it, Bob. And he said, I get together very vibrant, strong, evangelical senior ministers together with their staffs in a cohort, and we run them through a couple of meetings, and we've experienced that it's had tremendous outcomes. And I said, I would, I'd take a look at it. So I got together some people that are still with me, and Steve Picard is here from Parish Catalyst, and I just want to recognize Steve, he's doing great work. We have a, a staff of three, in addition to Steve, that are back home, you know, working hard. And what we did as a first thing was try to figure out what, was, what Bob was doing, what was getting these cohorts together. The first cohort he ever got together in 1984, there were, there were 10 senior ministers, one of which was a fellow named Rick Warren. Another one was Bill Hybels. Another one was Andy Stanley. And the way Rick told it when I talked to him, because, you know, Bob uh, made an introduction, and Rick and I have become very good friends. He said, yeah, that was back when Bob Buford won Bob Buford, and Rick Warren wasn't Rick Warren. Bill Hybels won Bill Hybels, and Andy Stanley wasn't Andy Stanley. We were just getting together to listen to Peter Drucker, to hear about how do we make something grow, and how do we make it be vibrant. And Peter, of course, had a lot of business background, and now he had switched his attention to nonprofits. So we began to think this is a very interesting idea. But what I wanted to make sure, I'm 65 now, same age as my buddy Milton, and then I was 61, and I wasn't retired from business. I work a lot with Jim uh, at our family foundation. But I knew one thing for sure. I didn't want to compete with anybody. I have competed for 40 years. And I don't, I'm, I don't want to say anymore, my product's better than your product, especially if it's in the Catholic tradition where I'm going around saying these are really nice people, but actually our product's way better. So the next thing we did at Parish Catalyst, because that's what our entity is called, although it wasn't called Parish Catalyst in those days, it was called Exploration Incorporated. And we studied, is anybody else doing this in the Catholic tradition? And what we learned was part of this magical journey. There are a lot of really terrific parachurch organizations out there. You all probably know many of them, maybe all of them. National Leadership Roundtable, Catholic Leadership Institute, you know, Amazing Parish, Dynamic Catholic. I got to know all of them, and they're terrific. And along the way, Bob Buford, you know, has been my mentor. One thing he said was, whatever you do, any of these other organizations, only say good things, even if you think their business model might be weak in this one area or another. So I'm going to tell you today that every last one of these parachurch organizations is fantastic, right? But we know one thing for sure, Steve and me and our three other folks at Parish Catalyst, they're not doing what we're doing. The next thing we did was say, well, if we're going to get together groups of pastors and we're going to get together senior, you know, members of their senior staff, we've got to identify them. So what we did is I called Bob and I said, Bob, okay, I'm going to go that next step along the path can you give me some information in terms of how you conducted those interviews? How'd you identify these people? And he said, well, we have a protocol of 23 questions. And I said, great. We looked at it. We added nine questions. We had a protocol of 32 questions. And then 
we set about identifying what we thought were a hundred vibrant pastors. And we did it through a sociological sampling technique that's known as snowball sampling. Now this research that we did, we think is the most academically rigorous that's ever been conducted with respect to parishes in the history of the Catholic Church. Now that's a very bold statement, right, Father Arnie? I hope I mean, it's a very bold statement. And I will tell you, and Milton can be my supporter, that my college professors would be shocked <laughs> if I told them that I would ever write a book, number one, or number two, that it would be academically rigorous. I had the help of Steve's colleagues at Parish Catalyst. I had the help of people with doctorates in pastoral ministry and in sociology. And what we did with this snowball sampling technique is we'd call Father Arnie. We'd call the Archbishop's office in Los Angeles, Cardinal's office in New York, lay ministers, people that were active in the faith. And we'd say, who do you think are the vibrant churches in your area? Give us three or four right off the top of your head. And they would. And then we compared. And over a couple of months, we came up with 100. And at the end of that protocol, we'd ask the 100. They named another 144. So instead of 100, we came up with 244. And in the interviews, with their permission, we taped them, we transcribed them, we had over 3,600 pages of transcripts. I think even more than Watergate. And we took 18 months to analyze those 3,600 pages. And we came up with 49 findings. And we grouped those 49 findings into four categories. I'm going to talk about these four categories briefly. I want to try to leave plenty of room for question and answer. But one fact before I go into these four overarching themes, one of the reasons I make this bold statement that this could be the most academically rigorous study ever undertaken in parish work is that our response rate was 82%. Now, there's a lot of places, terrific places, that do research, take polls, you know, whether it be in the Catholic tradition, other traditions, and politics, you name it. 82% response rate is unheard of. Usually it's about 25%, which leads to the obvious question, well, what about the other 75%? What do they think? Well, they say, yeah, but we have these sampling techniques. That's fine, but us, 82% response rate, this data is good. You know, these findings are solid with respect to this, you know, group of vibrant parishes. So when we talk about what's going on in vibrant parishes, we believe we've got these 49 findings which kind of lay it out. Good, bad, and hopeful. So we came up with 49 findings and four themes that encompass these 49 findings. The first is, not surprisingly, leadership. And under leadership, we had 12 findings. Those 12 findings, all in the book, can be summarized by one word, shared. Leadership in vibrant parishes is shared. 80% of the pastors said they basically work with lay people. Some consult, some delegate, some collaborate. Three basic times of, types of leadership. But 
the common thread is that it's shared. Unlike when I was growing up, when in, in our faith, the role of lay people, they used to joke, was pray, pay, and obey. No longer. In these vibrant parishes, no longer. Now, the way we organize the book, each of these four themes has two chapters. One chapter with strengths, one chapter with challenges. So one of the challenges in the area of leadership was that pastors sometimes had problems with their staffs. 40% of the pastors, a high percent, said, you know, we have to, you know, we have to address the fact that there are personnel issues. And often I would say to the pastors, you know, I've been running a business for almost 40 years now. Welcome to running things. There are staff problems in every area that has any more than two or three people working for it, so don't worry. But I think it's an area where groups like Catholic Leadership Institute and National Leadership Roundtable can add value because they generally don't teach in the seminary, and Father Arnie, you tell me if I'm right or wrong, how to manage things, how to manage people, how to deal with conflict when it comes to staffs. So the second area is spiritual formation and discipleship. 50% of the parishes said that, oh, sorry, 90% of the parishes, pastors said spiritual growth is an important strength of that parish. But interestingly enough, of that 90%, 75% said that they could improve. So I thought that was very, you know, candid. It was, it's a good assessment of what their, what, what their strengths are, but also where they can improve. And what they found was that parishioners who have a greater engagement in the parish, they grow spiritually. There's a lot of debate whether or not belonging leads to believing or believing leads to belonging. We don't solve that question. I'm not sure there's a real answer to it, but we do know one thing for sure. When the parishioners grow spiritually, there's more engagement in the parish. And the challenge, which I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear, is that you know, pretty much across the board, the engagement level is low. Let me tell you what I mean by that. So the second chapter under this second theme of spiritual formation and discipleship was all about engagement. And what I found when I, I talked to Rick Warren or Bill Hybels was that engagement, even at their congregations, was low. So for example, Bill Hybels told me he did a study back in 2005. He grew his church from zero to 30,000 parishioners in 30 years. And he commissioned a study. And he admitted in this book he wrote called MOVE, M-O-V-E, which I recommend, he admitted in the foreword of the book that what he was fully expecting on the study was a pat on the back. You've done a great job, Pastor Hybels. You've been unbelievable. What came back was you got 30,000 people on the rolls, but about 15% are paying attention. That was a bad day, Bill said. That was a very bad day. He wasn't sure what to do. Either say, you know, forget that survey, or address it. And he addressed it in this book, Move. 
And what we found in our tradition, whether it be Matthew Kelly at 7% or Catholic Leadership Institute at 6%, whatever tool you want to use, and I'll get to one in a second that's a little higher but not much, the numbers are shockingly low. The average in our parishes, our 244, is 30%. I'll get to that in a sec. So I thought to myself, even before I knew, you know, before I started interviewing, at that level, that should be an opportunity. Some people say, wow, that's low. That must mean that business is on its way out. The Catholic parish, forget about it, as we used to say in New Jersey. You don't want to know. <laughs> I look at it different. I say, is there a chance to double? I've been in the investment business for almost 40 years with my brother and previously with my dad before he passed away. And dad would always talk about the chance to double. What's the odds you can double your investment in a reasonable period of time? I thought to myself, when I saw that number that Bill Hybels gave me, 15%, or Matt Kelly gave me, 7%, the chance to, you know, we should be able to double that. If we can't go from 7 to 14, shame on us. That was my initial reaction, so I did a little bit more research. And there's a tool out there that was uh, established by the Gallup Corporation. Does everybody know the Gallup Corporation, you know, the pollsters? They have a religion department. And in that department, they've got a couple of tools for measuring engagement and for increasing it. So the measurement of engagement is a tool that's called the ME25. And as of about a month ago, over 900 Catholic parishes had done the ME25. Our parish in Santa Monica did it. They came in at 29%. My pastor called me and said, because I'd encouraged him to do it, and he said, is, is that good? And I said, let's call the people at Gallup and find out. And we did. And Gallup said, well, it's good news and pretty good news. The average amongst the top 25% is 30. So you're right there. You're in the top 25%. The average amongst everybody that took the test is 18%. And my pastor said, we're going to stick with the 18% number. So even at 18%, the chance to double to me is compelling. So if you take a look at the fact that Engagement levels are low. It's demonstrated that engagement levels at the more vibrant parishes is higher, but still not at a level that people would say it can't go any higher. Several of the parishes that we're familiar with in our work are at 50. So if you're at 30, I said to our pastor, why don't you try to get to 40? And if we take a look at what the bold numbers are nationwide, this is where I get excited. So there's 80 million Catholics. About 80% of them are affiliated somehow with a parish. That's 64 million people, give or take. You don't really have to be close for this, for this measurement purposes. And if 15% of them are engaged, call it 9 million. If you can get that number 9 to 18, that's an extra 9 million people. That's big. So that's kind of what we're up to at our Foundation Parish Catalyst, where we're trying to get groups together. Father Michael was part of the first group. And this is why, to me, 
you know, this is, this is an exciting, exciting opportunity. And what we found with our vibrant parishes is that we're on the way. So we have a story to tell that's a realistic story. Unlike some of the narrative today, you know, I, I talked to my good pal George Weigel, who's on his way out of the country, otherwise he'd be here, about what's going on in Europe. You know, I don't have to tell you what's going on in France. 90% of the population's Catholic, 2% go to church. So, you know, there are negative things if you want to focus on them. There's no question about it. You know, Germany's not much better. Belgium's not much better, George was telling me. And I said, George, this is a great story. We ought to build off of this. And he agreed. So the third area that we focused on with 14 findings was what some call the Sunday experience. And once again, I can give you a couple of highlights. First highlight, the Sunday experience does not begin on Sunday. It begins on Monday. And it goes through the week, through Saturday, and then comes Sunday. And so what do you do Monday through Saturday? Well, these parishes, what they do, they're pretty good at social media. They could get better, but they're better than most. That's an area where people can stay in touch with each other, particularly millennials. I mean, my kids, they've dragged me kicking and screaming. I'm still not on Facebook, although I would, I would welcome you to check Parish Catalyst out, right, Steve, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm on Instagram, but I'm 65. I mean, there's a limit to what I'm going to be able to do. But millennials, we're losing millennials by the bucket in the Catholic Church. One way to get them back is get savvy and have millennials talking to millennials. That's what our pastors were telling us during the week. Another thing that some of us over the hillers can do, small groups. I, you know, the, there's a number of different areas of small groups, but one of my, well, Rick Warren said, the larger that his church becomes, the smaller it has to get. And he, by that he means small groups. Now, on a weekend, you know, Rick might get 20,000 people at his services. Guess how many he gets during a week? 40,000. Can you imagine? My pastor at St. Monica's, it blew his mind. And I said, you get them through small groups. Rick came, and Father Michael knows, because Rick came and talked to, you know, our cohort that Father Michael was in. Remember yeah. Father Michael? Remember when he talked about small groups? And we were like, oh, my gosh. So during the week, you can do things. Our vibrant pastors, like Father Michael, talked about that engage your flock. And on Sunday, when you do go to Mass, you know, in the old days, I mentioned, they, you know, Mom and Dad piled the seven of us into a station wagon, and, you know, we weren't terribly happy at that point, and often fighting. And so when we got up the front steps of the church, uh, we had almost quieted down. Dad had threatened, you know, various forms of mayhem. And uh, we get into the church and squeezed into the pew, and, you know, we attended the service. Now what happens at these vibrant parishes is before you get to the front steps, when you drive into the parking lot, people are meeting you from the church. And when I went to St. Monica's, what happened 26 years ago, I'll never forget, 
I, at that point, we had three kids, and they were behaving just like I had and my brother and sisters had. We pull up, somebody comes up to our car and takes the kids. I looked at my wife and I said, thank God, I like this parish already, <laughs> you know? And so the experience of going to the parish on Sunday starts when you drive in. And then, of course, when you go up the stairs and you enter the church, you, you, the liturgy has got to be vibrant. And the, and I'll, the Eucharist is the source and summit, absolutely. But if I was going to give you two words to characterize vibrant liturgy, preaching, music. That's what most of the pastors talked about. Talked about preaching and music. And just think about it in your own experience. You know, if you're going to tell somebody about your parish, uh, which we need to do more and more, that's the fourth theme, evangelization, you're almost always going to talk about preaching, aren't you? You're going to say, come to my church. The pastor gives great homilies. You're not going to say, come to my church. You know, the homilies are not very good, but everything else is good. So preaching and music are keys. Now, what's an area, that second chapter of this Sunday experience, you can imagine the challenge, there was a few of them, that we talked about. And that is the secularization of society. You know, the fact that there's a lot of competing priorities on Sunday. When we were growing up, you know, Sunday was a day of peace and quiet, a day you went to church, didn't do much when you got home from church. Now it's soccer practice, football practice, piano lessons, you know, college board tutors. You know, there's a million and one things to compete. And, you know, the, the pastors said they find that, they find they acknowledge it's really hard. And that's why they want to make the Sunday experience one, not only that doesn't start on Sunday, but when you get there, maybe after church, you might have a meal. N maybe coffee and donuts for sure, but I know my wife and I, for example, I don't cook much or I don't cook hardly at all. But on the weekends, we go to 5.30 Mass uh, with Kirk's uh, brother and sister-in-law. And if pastor says from the pulpit, and by the way, today we're having Mexican food in the pavilion, we're like, fantastic. And what do we do? We go have some Mexican food, and who do we talk to? We talk to our fellow parishioners. And we're happy because we're happy the whole experience was great. We're more inclined you know, not to skip a Sunday. Now, the fourth area is, is probably my favorite. That's evangelization. And I would say I'll start with the challenge, and probably the reason is my favorite. When we were growing up, you know, I keep saying this back in the days of old, I, I don't think Catholics were very aggressive about evangelization, honestly. You know, I think that many of us, myself included, felt funny about the possibility of being a Jesus freak or wearing our faith on our sleeve, whatever it happened to be. And having done research for this book, you know, we wrote a chapter on the history of the American Catholic parish, I can understand a little better why. My theory is that uh, in 1776, when this country was founded, only 2% of the population was Catholic. Inside 50 years, it was 25%. Why was it 25%? You, you know what the answer is, it's immigration. 
In those days, it was the Polish, it was the Irish, later it was the Italians. So I love it when people say now, geez, the Catholic Church would be sinking if it weren't for immigration. You know, the, the, the membership roles have declined. The only thing that's kind of propping it up is immigration. Well, I might say that that's been going on for, you know, over 200 years now. So I'm not worried about immigration, quote, propping up anything. Our country has been a great melting pot and will continue to be so It'll, in, in whatever ways the folks, you know, a couple of blocks away from here decide, but it's not going to keep Catholics from coming in. And these days, however, Catholics have been integrated into society much more than before. So back in the 1800s, when the signs around New York City were Irish need not apply, so Irish hung around together in parishes all over New York, Chicago, same thing with the Polish uh, parishes, you know, they kept their custom and practices, and, and that was a good thing. Now, Catholics have been integrated, we don't really have much excuse not to evangelize. And that's why 50% of our pastors say they view evangelization as a strength. And that's why the other 50% said we can improve because it's like the shackles are off. Don't worry about what's on your sleeve. Get out. And then we now have a pope that's speaking that language. You know, you may not agree with some of the pope's pronouncements on matters economic. I don't myself, but I remind myself the pope is not the secretary of treasury. He's not the chairman of the Federal Reserve. He's talking about reaching out. He's talking about the parish being a field hospital, where when the wounded come in, the first question is not, can I possibly see your insurance coverage? And that's good. And that's reflected in our research. Here's how. There's some things that the pastors talked about that we didn't ask about. So I mentioned we had 32 questions. We didn't have one question about Pope Francis. We didn't have one question about the Pope. One out of every three pastors brought up Pope Francis. They said he's a breath of fresh air. All this talk about outreach, about the field hospital, about the pastor has to smell like the sheep. And it's energized them. It's inspired them. So I know we debate in other areas, has there been a Francis effect? I can tell you in our data, there has been a Francis effect. And you know, you can debate other areas, but in the area of parish life, there has serious, there's been a you know, very serious effect. So those are our four themes, the good, the bad, the hopeful. We tried to be really candid about some of the challenges, and I think that I'll just close with one challenge, and that is the millennials. I mentioned a moment ago they're leaving, you know, really in, in great numbers, and it's a real issue, not just for the Catholic Church, for pretty much all denominations. I think we have to focus on that. And so at Parish Catalyst, as an example, Steve's here, we now get together these cohorts of priests and their senior, senior staff, and we focus on a topic. Our last two cohorts, we focused on millennials. And we, and we think this is very worthy and fertile ground 
to plow because we don't have to be losing as many hundreds of thousand millennials as we do. But we got to get better. We got to focus on it. So in closing, I want to I want to say thanks, Father Arnie, thanks, Mitch. It's, it's great to be here. And it's, it's a great privilege for me uh, to be involved with parishes. I, when, I, when I first started the research, I was you know, intrigued by the chance to double. I know that may sound a little mercenary, but it's the truth. I was intrigued that this could be a, a very interesting opportunity. And about six months ago, Rick Warren came as Father Michael knows, to our second cohort. And he said, you know, the local church is the greatest engine for good in history. And I thought to myself, wow, how lucky am I to get to work in a place where you can be involved with the greatest engine for good in history. And he said there are eight reasons for that. He went through them. I won't go through them with you. But when you think about it, 2,000-year-old track record, not encumbered by government, not encumbered by having shareholders, whose only motivation is to do good. And through the centuries, it's evolved. And parishes are going to evolve in the next 50 years. But it's good. It's all good. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so now we're going to do uh, questions and answers Q&A. Um, if you have a question, just raise your hand and I'll come to you and we'll have you speak into the mic so that it can go on our recording and for everyone who's listening on Facebook Live. Very nice, <coughs> very nice talk, Bill. I uh, appreciate your uh, good work. It, it looks excellent and um, I'm sure it will bear great fruit. Uh, you, you know, you said I was always asking questions, and I, it was questions that led me to the Catholic Church because I found it has the answers. And I hope a lot of people that are questioning will, will come to that same conclusion. Um, the third topic you talked about, you talked about um, church uh, beginning, not just being on Sunday, but being a, a week-long, sort of a continual day, part of your daily life, as it were. Um, it sounded like there was a real social component to all of that. You know, you talked about people getting together in small groups and coffee and meals and and I, having come from the Episcopal tradition, that, that is the thing that I have found, frankly, missing in, in Catholic parish life. Um, and, it, and I think it has to do with what you talked about, really, the, the ethnic component. That it used to be your parish was your, it was your neighborhood center, whether it was the Lithuanians or the Polish or, you know, whatever they were, all the northern cities had their neighborhoods where the church was the center of their life. And, and once the suburbanization of America happened and the neighborhoods broke up and um, they all went their way, they, they lost that component. But, but Protestant churches never had a, really an ethnic component so much. You, you know, so they reached out more to sort of everybody, and they didn't expect you to be part of a club. And so um, there, there's an outgoingness about, about Protestant churches. I think Catholics need to uh, d discover that's just a thought. Do you agree with that, or it's just an observation? You know, I think, you know, when I said that historically yeah. Catholics were not, were reluctant to evangelize, it's probably part of that. Uh, but you, you introduced another component, which I think is important, and that is as, para, as Catholics have integrated into, you know, regular society, let's say. So when you have six members of the Supreme Court are Catholic, whereas there were many years there was no member of the Supreme Court. Uh, you had a Catholic president, you know, you, 
you really have had a full-on assimilation of Catholics into society. And you've also had, you know, kind of a breakdown, I mean, Jim would know this better than me, of, you know, ethnic clusters in a lot of different cities. It's really put upon, and, and I'd add another component, and that is people move to different parishes now. You know, when we were all growing up, you didn't go outside the geographical boundaries. Now, I was asked 